Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my podcast series on sacrifices and offerings. Now, in today's podcast, we'll focus on the exciting topic of burnt sacrifices. And no, this is not a cautionary tale of what happens when you walk away from cooking bacon on the stove. Although I confess, I have done this many times. I want to give a shout out to Lars and Lisa Hansen for giving me the idea for this podcast and a shout out to my husband, Jeff, for his really good questions that I'm going to attempt to answer. So, what is up with sacrifices anyway? Do people still do them today? Why or why not? And what do you do with the carcass? Do you skin the animal? What about the organs? Do they stay or do you throw them away? And can you put the animal on the fire and then walk away like I sometimes do with the bacon? Or do you have to tend to it and make sure it was all consumed? Can you eat any of the meat? What types of animals were used? Could you just use what you had on hand, like the errant uh, rodent? How do you dispose of the ashes and the bones? Was this a slow cook or a blazing inferno? Do you have to use special wood? Who can offer a sacrifice? Yeah, we have lots of questions, don't we? Well, To understand the biblical need for sacrifices and offerings, we first need to look at ourselves. Wait, what? What do we in the 21st century have to do with the need for sacrifices? We need to take a deep, long, perhaps uncomfortable look at ourselves in the mirror. The reason we need to do this is because we are the reason why the Bible talks about sacrifices. Yeah, were the reason innocent animals were sacrificed in the Old Testament. In this podcast series, we'll take a look at why people in the Old Testament offered sacrifices and then why suddenly in the New Testament, this practice stopped. And we'll uncover why it is frowned upon for you to bring a dead animal to church with you today, just in case you were planning on doing this. There's a really good video on thebibleproject.com that explains sacrifice and sin. And I'm going to attempt to summarize this for you in today's podcast. Over the next few lessons, we'll uncover the different types of sacrifices and offerings and what they were for. Did you ever wonder what they did with all those dead animals? Wasn't that a lot of good meat going to waste? And What about food offerings? I seem to remember something about grain offerings. Hmm, so many good questions. All right, so you've looked in the mirror. Good. As I said, here's the bad news. You, me, everybody are the reason for sacrifices. Yeah, it actually goes back to the very beginning of the Bible. Remember that story about Adam and Eve? I have a three-part series on the story of Adam and Eve, if you need a quick refresher. 
And here's the spoiler alert if you've not listened to it. Adam and Eve make a catastrophic decision to decide for themselves the definition of good and bad. And this is not good. Oh, and their children, Cain and Abel, are then faced with the decision on how to honor God. And Cain is faced with a choice similar to his parents. And God even tells Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do what is not right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it, unquote. This is actually the first time the word sin appears in the Bible. The Hebrew word for sin is kata, K-H-A-T-A. And the word kata means to fail or miss the goal. To fail or miss the goal. That's actually an interesting way to look at the word sin, isn't it? What's also interesting is that when people are sinning, they generally don't see themselves as failing or missing the goal, but actually quite the opposite. To quote the infamous Charlie Sheen, they think they are winning when they're actually sinning. Sin is actually the way we delude ourselves into redefining bad as good. So let's think about sin for a moment. What happens when we sin? Well, when we sin, it affects us, but it also affects others. I used to tell my confirmation students that no one sins in a closet. Our sin affects others. It often creates an injustice. It ruins the relationship. It ruins the bond of trust. When a relationship is ruined, we owe something to make it right again. We have ruined the whole environment around the relationship. One way to think of this is that the air becomes bad. The very ground becomes bad. We ruin the whole atmosphere of the relationship with others and with God. But since God is God, he can fix this, right? God should just rid the world of evil, right? You probably know people who think this way, and maybe you've found yourself thinking this way. Well, here's the problem. If God got rid of evil, he would have to get rid of the person you saw in the mirror. He would have to get rid of all of us because we all sin, and sin is evil. So that's not a really good solution, is it? So what did God do instead? This is actually so beautiful and so brilliant. God ordered his people in the Old Testament to use an animal as a sacrifice. God allowed the animal's life to be a substitute for ours. The animal's death became a symbolic replacement for our death. The biblical word for this replacement is atonement. Atonement actually means to cover over someone's death. In fact, you might know the atonement cover is the name of the lid over the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence with the early Hebrew people. And remember, it was a carefully made container that 
house the Ten Commandments. Now, we said that sin, kata, damages relationships, and that it actually pollutes the whole atmosphere of the relationship. If you think about the Ten Commandments, these ten laws from God, and you break them down, they can be summarized by our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And this relationship helps us to understand that when we hurt others, we hurt God. Our relationship with God and others is inextricably linked because we're all made in the image of God. In order to clear away the damage done to the relationship, God directed the priests in the Old Testament to sprinkle the blood of an animal that was to be sacrificed on various parts of the temple. The animal's blood represents life. The blood represented how God would clean away the consequences of our evilness. The blood would be sprinkled around the temple to symbolically clean up the pollution of our sin. This cleaning away with the blood is called purification. So, okay, at this point, you're probably feeling a little queasy. We just talked about blood. We sort of have a tough time with animal sacrifices, don't we? Well, you know, we actually get a lot of our notions about sacrifices from bad B-movies, literature, and our limited knowledge of pagan practices, some of which still occur today. The authors of thebibleproject.com describe it this way. Think of a bad B-rated scary movie scenario. Maybe there's a God who is angry and he's going to kill you unless you sacrifice something or someone, maybe a young virgin. But if you kill this animal and make sure the gods get their tasty meal, maybe they'll be happy and just maybe they won't kill you or send a plague on your family. And then, of course, reading the classics like the Iliad or the Odyssey or maybe the ancient epic of Gilgamesh, you read about animal sacrifice, and then we assume it was much the same in the Bible. We mistakenly assume that the same gods are at work. The result is a tragic irony. What the Bible is actually portraying as an expression of God's love gets twisted into something dark. Where in the Bible does God instruct his people with this idea of sacrifice? Do you know? Well, the specific instructions are found in the book of Leviticus. Not the most exciting book in the Bible, if you ask me. But here's the cool part. Its placement in the Bible makes perfect sense. Because What's the book right before Leviticus? Let's see, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Oh, Exodus. At the end of Exodus, God has given Moses instructions on how to build a temporary place of worship. This was called the tabernacle. And it was a tent-like structure because it's going to be the dwelling place for God while they're in the desert. And this will be until they get settled and then build a more permanent structure that'll be called the temple. But there's a problem that we see at the end of the book of Exodus. The people are ruining their relationships with each other and therefore with God. 
They are defiling, polluting their relationships. And the Bible teaches that God is opposed to sin and evil and that he's holy and righteous and that God wants a relationship with us. So God in the book of Leviticus instructs his people on how to clean up their acts so that he can be fully in their presence because sin is keeping these people from having a relationship with God. So what's the solution? Well, God gives his people an alternative way to deal with their sin and their rebellion. Now, remember, the Israelites are surrounded by pagan nations, and they've just crossed a desert from the pagan nation of Egypt. So the Israelites are familiar with this idea of sacrifice. God, however, transforms the meaning of sacrifice from trying to please false gods to being an atonement or cover for their sins so that they can be in a right relationship with God who loves them unconditionally. Unbeknownst to them, their sin has built up a wall between them and God. And God desperately wants to be in relationship with his people. But sin keeps us from accomplishing that goal. Failing to honor God is connected to failing to honor people. Sin against people is sin against God. Because remember, we're all made in his image. Sin blinds us into thinking we're doing right when in fact we're doing wrong. So in Leviticus, the Israelites are given a way to experience God's love and grace and forgiveness through this symbolic ritual of an animal sacrifice. The idea was that this sacrifice would cause the people to live in peace because they've experienced forgiveness by God. Now, the book of Leviticus was written by Moses. And as I've said, it gives a set of instructions to the Israelites and the priests for living right and making sacrifices. And the instructions were intended to help draw them toward a deeper understanding of how holy, infinitely holy God is. And because he's holy, how we should act towards him. But the idea of offering a burnt sacrifice to God is actually mentioned in the Bible way before Leviticus. It actually happens twice in the book of Genesis and a few times in Exodus. The first burnt offering was actually offered by Noah after the floodwaters subsided. And that story is in Genesis chapter 8, starting at verse 20. And then you're probably familiar with the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. Remember, he's to offer Isaac, his son, as a burnt offering. And then, of course, remember that there's a ram which God has supplied to take Isaac's place as a burnt offering. And in Exodus... We have the story of Moses, and this is at the very beginning when Moses approaches Pharaoh, and he says that Pharaoh must allow the Israelites to take their cattle into the wilderness to worship God because they needed to offer burnt offerings. 
And then there's a few other stories with Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, and then also after receiving God's covenant at the base of Mount Sinai, we also see this uh, burnt offering being mentioned. Okay, so we have some examples of these burnt offerings prior to the specific instructions in Leviticus. What does the Bible say about what type of animal can be offered? The Bible says that any offering brought to the Lord had to be one of a man's own sheep, cattle, or goats from his own herd. So in other words, you can't take a cow from your neighbor and offer it as a sacrifice. Probably a good thing. And it says you're supposed to offer it voluntarily and that motives for sacrifice were to be pure and not motivated by self-righteousness. The Bible tells us that God wanted perfect animals without spots or blemishes. Animals such as sheep and cattle had to be males, and they couldn't be sick or diseased or crippled. Birds also had to be unblemished. Leviticus chapter 1 said that these sacrifices had to be made willingly from a person's desire to love and worship the Lord. Notice how this is very different from pagan worship and pagan sacrifice. In pagan worship, the sacrifice was made out of fear of retribution. Here, God is asking that the burnt sacrifices be symbolic of a person's love and faith towards God. The person who brought the offering was the male head of the household. Women could not bring the offering. And the male who brought the offering was to put their hand on the head of the animal and kill it. This whole idea of placing the hand on the head of the animal was to symbolize the acknowledgement that something innocent, the animal, was dying in your place for your sinfulness. This is where we get that notion of a scapegoat. Notice how it was the male head of the household who also killed the animal. The priests, as I said before, would then sprinkle the blood of the animal around the altar. And remember why they spread the blood around? It was to purify the atmosphere. The blood was a symbol of God cleaning away the consequences of our sin. Then they were told to pull the skin off the animal and cut it into pieces. God offered even more specific instructions for the fire and the laying of the wood as well as what to do with the head and the fat from the animal once it was sacrificed to the Lord. So let's actually open up our Bibles to Leviticus chapter 1 and we're going to together decipher the instructions that God gives to his people. Leviticus 1, starting at verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. 
You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. And then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron the priest are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, you are to offer a male without defect. You are to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall splash his blood against the sides of the altar. You are to cut it into pieces, and the priest shall arrange them, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to bring all of them and burn them on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off the head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He is to remove the crop and the feathers and throw them down east of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear it open by the wings, not dividing it completely. And then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is burning on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord, unquote. Let's first get an idea of what this altar looked like that received the sacrifice. The word altar in Hebrew actually means place of slaughter. Think about that. I will do a future podcast on the significance from the Old Testament of our current church altar, but I want you to just pause for a moment to let that sink in. Altar means place of slaughter. In the Old Testament, the bronze altar stood outside of the tabernacle. I'm not sure if you caught that when we were reading it. Now remember, this is the tabernacle, which is a tent. It's, it's this temporary place of worship before they build a permanent temple. And it's probably smart that they have the altar on the outside of the tent because you definitely don't want a blazing inferno inside of a tent. That's a problem. The Bible also tells us that every piece of furniture inside the tent in the holy place is made of gold. But this is interesting. In the outer court area where the sacrifice is made, the articles are made of bronze. Bronze was to symbolize the world and that the world is under the judgment of God. So the altar, it's made of bronze. Well, it's actually made of acacia wood 
overlaid with bronze. Now, during the time of the tabernacle, the tent, this altar was seven and a half feet square and about four feet high. It contained a bronze grating at the top of the altar. And then next to the altar were the utensils and the bronze pots and then the shovels to remove the ashes. I have a picture of what this altar probably looked like on my website, studentofthebible.com. Later, when the permanent temple was constructed, the altar in the outer courtyard was huge, 15 feet high and 30 feet square. I want you to visualize this. As you entered the courtyard of the tabernacle through the gate, the altar of burnt offering would be the first tabernacle furnishing that you would see as you approach the tabernacle. To the left of the altar would be this huge ash heap where the ashes from the altar were placed. Now, between the altar and the actual tabernacle door was what they called a bronze laver. And it's basically this huge bowl that's set on a pedestal. And that's where the priests would wash themselves because this is a pretty bloody mess. Then there's the actual doorway to the tabernacle. The burnt offering altar was located at the approach to the tabernacle. This would allow ordinary men, non-priests, to draw near to God who dwelt in the tabernacle. We learn from Leviticus that the burnt offering was a whole burnt offering, which means it was totally consumed on the altar. Neither the man making the offering nor the priest were able to have any of the meat. Did you notice that? Because it was all burned in the fire. In fact, the only thing saved, do you remember what it was? It was the skin. The hide of the animal would be the priest's payment for the duties performed. What have we learned so far? Sin, kata, causes us to fail or miss the goal. What's the goal? It's to have a right relationship with God and others. What was the solution in the Old Testament to demonstrate God's love for his people and his desire to help them understand the consequences of their sin? It was to substitute their death, caused by their sin, with the blood of an innocent animal. The whole process sounds pretty gory, and I'm sure it was smelly and noisy and messy. But isn't that a good way to think of sin? Sin is messy. Sin isn't pretty. Sin leaves a mark. But we have some really good news. What is this good news? We will talk about this in our next podcast in a series on sacrifice and offerings. But I'm going to give you a little foreshadowing. You do not need to bring a cow or a dove or a chicken to church because a lamb has already been sacrificed for you once and for all. Have a blessed day. 